Hello, my name is Zach Robichaud. And I'm Jackie Mignot. You're listening to the podcast Made Flesh. Conversations about an embodied faith. We are at the spectacular Calgary Central Library, sipping our Luke's coffee, sitting down with people to talk about the incarnation. We aren't reporters or experts, but we are questioners, and we are on a quest to have a conversation around the central Christian belief that God became flesh. podcast listeners. Uh, this is episode one. Are you excited about that, Jackie? Yes, yes. I'm very excited. This has been a long time coming. <laughs> yes, it has. When, when did we first start about talk? When did we first start talking about putting a podcast together? Oh, like at least a couple years ago. Yeah, and I we've, so we've been working on it for about a year. Yeah. Close so this two. is exciting. We're going to yeah. release this. Um, and we've already got some some episodes in the can ready to release and we have plans to record some more very soon so we're excited that you are joining along with us our first episode can you tell us a little bit about terry faw so in our first episode we uh we interviewed terry faw who is a chaplain at ambrose university here in calgary which is a liberal arts uh school and seminary university um and we really just wanted to ask him some questions about why is the incarnation important theologically, historically, practically? And he brings to it um, his a scholarly lens as well as a pastoral lens. He spent a lot of time um, working as a pastor. Yeah, his, his voice and his perspective and then the conversation we had was just really rich, giving um, and beautiful. It was very beautiful in how he spoke of the incarnation um, theologically and how it changes how we view God. Yeah, I really appreciated how his his own, the way he pastored changed. Mm. Uh, we had some on, offline conversations uh, that were even more challenging. Mm. And uh, I hope we can have him on again, Yeah, uh, maybe season two, uh-huh. if we last that long. Yes. All right. My name is Terry Faw. I am currently the chaplain, campus chaplain at Ambrose University in Calgary. Before that, I was the pastor of a church for 16 years. Uh, I came to be a pastor after lecturing. I was trained academically as a philosopher. Okay. And yeah. uh, my area of specialty was the philosophy of religion. And uh, yeah, I spent far too long preparing to do that. And, school um, <laughs> but in the midst of that I was called I felt a calling to start a church which I did with a group of wonderful people and eventually became the full-time pastor of that church for 16 years and in 2013 uh, uh, moved on to a new position at the uh, at the university uh, been married for a long time Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I uh, have two adult daughters and uh, yeah glad to be here to talk about something pretty in my view really central mm-hmm. really critical really at the core of the Christian way of living and being mm. thank you um, well we could just dive right in and ask what is the Incarnation what is the doctrine of it? Yeah. Maybe we could talk about even the word doctrine and the word incarnation itself. Yeah, that's in good. 
Um, but yeah. I'd like to do that. A uh, good place to start. Yes, yeah. <laughs> where uh, good, clear thinkers want to start. Yeah. <laughs> all our terms um, on the table. Yeah, what are we talking about? Well, I think that's good to say. What, what does it mean to say it's a doctrine? And that the historic church calls it a doctrine. And I think, you know, I think by that, they are saying that this sits at the very core set of commitments to be Christian. I mean, I'm probably going to mention this several times, but I think it's really helpful to look at what is historic, what we call creedal, orthodox Christian belief. And that's really something that gets uh, evolves out of the worship and experience of the church. They, you know, they, Christianity doesn't start with a bunch of people in a room saying, let's think about theology and God right. and yeah. put it on paper and yeah. then disperse and right. do yes. this. It's do do this love of God in Christ mm. together as we uh, share our lives, pray, uh, express joy, eat together, and, and so forth, mm. care for one another. Mm -hmm. And out of that comes, uh, well, okay, let's let's try and um, make you know regulate our beliefs a little bit and decide what it is mm. we actually believe. So I, I just think it's important to say that doctrine means it's at the core. But right. the core comes out of a way of living and being. And I think that's well documented in the, in the history of the church. So would, would you say that maybe the doctrines were maybe hammered out explicitly only when there was these kind of people going sideways? Um, I mean, Paul usually makes these statements in the New Testament when he when there are people going doing exactly the opposite of what he taught them or what you know he believes yeah. that a life yeah. in Christ should look like um, and then even you know moving on into the early church where you know you have these uh, canons being written yep. down and mm -hmm. um, basically because there's one guy teaching something that's right. contrary or right you yeah. know so where where would the incarnation come out of like where where and when was it Kind of explicitly stated. Do, do you know? Maybe I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah. To... Well, I I don't think. I, I mean, I would just say in general that Scripture tends to underdetermine doctrine. What does that mean? What do you mean <laughs> well, by that? Well, it, it's a it's I borrow that phrase from believe it or not the philosophy of science, mm. where you assemble data or at least if you look at the way the, the logic of induction and, and theories and uh, the, the movement to different kinds of theories to explain phenomena in the world, mm. um, theories actually provide an explan the best explanation possible for the phenomena that you have. Okay. Right. Uh, the data. Yeah. And what we have in scripture is a lot of data, experiential data, the stories about the nascent church the early christians the the great teachers and the early apostles and paul and yeah. the, the the accounts of jesus life mm. and teaching there's not a systematic account there so for example you don't get a, an explicit the most would agree that there's not an explicit doctrine of the trinity right in scripture right and so too when you think about jesus and this is what now where we could zero in on incarnation yeah. Um, 
we get a lot of hints and whispers. And, and not just hints and whispers, some pretty explicit claims. Right. Uh, from the Apostle Paul, for example, the yeah. great first theologian of the, the church, hmm. who talks about and, and recites hymns to Christ. You know, Philippians chapter 1. Now, that's, that, to me, that is your best example of how this view, this exalted view of who Jesus is, hmm. is embraced in the worship right. of the church. It's, it's not everyone becomes a card-carrying Christian as soon as they know a doctrine. Right. It's yeah. out of their their hearts, they're able to sing this song in Philippians 1, this early hymn that Jesus is, you know, uh, in all things and through all things. And uh, through him all things yeah. are created. That, yeah. that he is, um, a, you know, there's a divinity, a right. practical divinity recognized in the way Christians worship mm. and live. So, uh, okay, so eventually Christians do, and I, and I agree that you know, when there's controversy, this seems to become a good opportunity to say, well, what exactly do we mean right. by that? Right. Right. And, and the other thing I'd say, sorry, I, I, no. I don't want to overqualify how we get going here, but you know, every human experience lands, if you will, in some kind of context. Right. So we're talking about Middle Eastern, Near Eastern, mm -hmm. um, first century. Uh, there, there's this milieu of mm -hmm. ideas and worldviews. And some of the early Christians are influenced by philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, strongly influenced by Platonism, Plato, yeah. right. for example. But there are other uh, kinds of religions and, and uh, philosophies, Stoicism, Gnosticism, mm -hmm. um, Judaism, yes. uh, right. uh, Christianity really is born in the cradle of another religion. So I mean, it's these this idea of who Jesus is emerges out of something quite complex yeah. and uh, yeah. um, natural, really. Right. So, uh, so, so incarnation. The the, the church, the the historic church, uh, probably puts its cards on the table most clearly when they when they gather the leaders in 325. I mean, believe it or not, it takes them this long to get to a, a point where they, you know, 300 years or so, and they're gathering around the table to say, we need to use words to uh, articulate something that, that we could all subscribe to. Mm. And in this uh, Council of Nicaea, in 325, they produce a creedal statement, a, a credo. Right. Uh, this is what we are going to say we are committed to. This is what we believe. We have faith in this God, in the, the Holy Spirit, in Jesus Christ, and uh, this is what we believe about mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. uh, incarnation. It's it's a word that the church begins to use. It's, a, it's really a Latin word. It means in which means into, which is the first part of it, and then carne, which is flesh, into flesh. God becomes flesh. Mm -hmm. um, incarnation is a, a technical term that Christians still use, and it's really naming the event in which the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God's Son, the Logos, the Word, mm -hmm. as John would put it, became flesh into flesh. 
Um, it's interesting that the Hebrew word for flesh uh, connotes uh, vulnerability. Mm -hmm. uh, it normally signifies mortality. Mm -hmm. um, and so God is never spoken of in the Old Testament as flesh. Right. Which is interesting. Mm. So flesh and God are as different as weakness and power from that point of view. Yeah. So for God to become flesh in Jesus uh, is a pretty significant moment here. Right. And I want to just also say that Christianity is a historical religion. It's not a I don't want to use big fancy philosophical words. But it's not a kind of a. It's set in time and space. I mean, right. This is the season of Christmas, and we're coming up to Epiphany, and the story we read in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter two, is that Jesus was born mm -hmm. in Bethlehem in Judea in a particular place at this time, right. in the time of Herod. Right. So we know that this was a time and a place. It's not just a big idea. Right. Something happens. Right. Something breaks into our world, our time and our space. So flesh and God come together in Jesus. It signifies, and here's where we, we, we need to start exploring what, yeah. what it's signifying to say that uh, you know, the word becomes flesh and pitches his tent in, in our midst. Mm -hmm. um, it signifies an entering into human time and space, but also into human frailty, if you will. Um, not, but not in a way that reduces the power of God. So, so this is how Christians began to. They were very careful in these right. early moments to not say this in a way that delimited the sovereignty and the majesty and the power mm -hmm. of God. God uh, enters into the realm of human frailty um, in a way that the Almighty, you might say, embraces everything that frailty entails mm. um, by living it, even to the point of dying it, crucifixion. And, and that, mm. and somehow the Almighty has been glorified in that, entering into frailty to the point of death. The crucifixion is a lifting up, right? Um, and uh, so the doctrine of incarnation is—you know—we call it a doctrine of incarnation. It sounds very imposing, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe inscrutable or something you can get to later. But uh, I would—I would say first of all, it's not a theological abstraction. It's—it's hmm. uh, it's not a mere concept or idea. Uh, it really sits, I think, at the center. The, the truths behind it, mm -hmm. as we as we tease them out, as they become apparent, the implications become clearer to us. It really, um, you know, it's it's an account of the lifetime of a Jewish peasant. Right. That's yeah. incarnation. Yeah. That's pretty earthy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a it's an account of God becoming flesh. And he was pleased to do so. Right. Um, he is, Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Mm -hmm. uh, he is uh, crucified. He's forsaken. And he is also Lord and God, both. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, 
incarnation is not a doctrine about a lone individual. And here I think we get into some, some really interesting implications. But this would be where you know the historic Christian teaching yeah. would, would land. Um, you know, we say that God enters into solidarity uh, with people. God, uh, through Jesus, enters into the life of human frailty. Right. And if you look at the life of Jesus, there's really a particular kind of people Jesus enters into mm. with life with. And those are vulnerable people. Um, he comes into direct contact with, yeah. um, and this becomes controversial because he is set. He lands in the cradle of Judaism, right. which has its own set of teachings, and, and Christianity borrows heavily from them. But what is significant, I think, about this entering into human frailty is Jesus is in direct contact with, uh, you know, the so-called sinners, right. uh, the sick, the poor, the disabled. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in the sex trade, yeah. uh, political criminals, Roman collaborators, uh, even dead bodies. Right. That's controversial. Unclean. Yeah. 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 Um, and and now, so so the son, we're told in the scriptures, loves the father, but he also loves these neighbors. Right. His. And these neighbors of Jesus become identified in some way with his own self. That's the conclusion uh, you get from this famous passage in Mark's Gospel, uh, where Jesus is responding to a question about the greatest of the commandments. Say, which is the greatest one? And he responds saying there are actually two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he re- recites the Jewish prayer, the Shema. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, love Here's, here's your first one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's a second one. Right. Love your neighbors Right. like you love yourself. Um, so, so in that sense, if he loves himself, who is God, got it. now he loves us as much as he loves the Father yeah. and himself as, and the Spirit. Like <laughs> there, there is, we get to enter into God as much as he enters into us. Yeah. Mm. Right. Like Absolutely. That, a, yeah. So you begin to see some of these uh, these layers. You peel away something right. that sounds a bit intimidating. Yeah. Um, but really it's it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. What about touch? So, you know, yeah, he touches dead bodies, which in Jewish law, like now you become unclean. So God becomes unclean. He touches lepers. Um, the, the woman who's bleeding touches him right like he allows himself to be touched he touches what um what significance is there just in physical touch than god touching us physically (laughs) (laughs) well i I mean i i think that again if you step back from just the idea of him that that god enfleshes himself yes Mm -hmm. There's a fundamental affirmation, a dignifying right. of yeah. all things material yes. and physical and embodied. And so, and, and I, I mean, getting to your question, um, you know, I think Jesus is, and I'm not a New Testament scholar, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that what you, what you, what's going on in the gospel accounts of Jesus interacting with 
the, 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 the scholars of his own religion mm. is he's challenging the idea of what purity is. Mm. And yeah. so much of the understanding of purity is connected with um, you know, the body. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Now you have this idea of God embodying himself. And so things like physical touch, I think, are ennobled. Right. Um, they're given uh, many things become, uh, how shall we put it, sacralized. You know, there, there's a there's a holy mm. significance about, yeah. about uh, things embodied. Um, I, you said something earlier, and I, I don't know if it, this is a good question for you, to, but you said the Almighty embraces everything that frailty entails. And I, I don't know if you have a story that could convey why that, like, how does that hit you in your life? Almighty embracing everything that frailty entails. How is that good news? Well, I mean, I guess it's good news for me because there becomes an opportunity, a possibility for a way of seeing all people mm. and all things um, through a redemptive kind of lens. Mm. Uh, maybe that's not the best way to put it. Something, by redemptive I mean something that honors its fundamental right. holiness yeah. as a created thing. Mm. <laughs> so if, you know, if this idea that God embraces created stuff Right. in incarnating himself in Christ. Um, there's this dignifying, there's this sacralizing of all things that are created. I mean, we get this yeah. in the Hebrew scriptures, right? God creates, and right. it's good. It's yeah. not, uh, you know, the, the creation is not the result of, you know, Gnostic brokenness. You know, something went wrong, right. therefore we've got all this. Right. It's a yeah. very different uh, starting point for creation but then God becomes in some sense that right. part of that yeah. creation so yeah. so to, to your question then um, I think the challenge is and, and you read and you see this through all good Christian thoughtful writing down through the centuries and there are best poetry you know there's the potential that Christ is in 10,000 places right. like yeah. Gerard Manley yeah. Hopkins yeah uh, lovely and Lynn, um, oh, yeah. uh, Taylor de Chardin, the uh, the Catholic writer, twentieth century, says by virtue of the creation, and still more of the of the incarnation, nothing here below is profane right. for those who know how to see. Mm. So, mm. you know, again, linking this back to your good question, how do we see? Right. Human frailty. Yeah. Um, I, I want to I want to ask this question because when, because you said something, the way we understand what God, how God holds us in a way, is not this Gnostic brokenness is what made humans humans. Because I think sometimes I have experienced this within. Um, church circles, and, and it's always like, I don't know if it's never meant to sound this way, but it just comes across. 
that our humanness is the broken part. Um, so everything that makes us human, the frailty, the, um, the, the fact that we can be wounded, like that is all not supposed to be that way. We need to be saved from that. From our humanness. Or despite is, that. Yeah, there's a, there's a definite sense of, um, or it can come across this way when we are talking in churches that we have to be saved from our humanness. And this is why I think I'm so drawn to um, talking about the incarnation is because then it it flips that somehow, flips that narrative, that mm -hmm. Gnostic where it's mm -hmm. like you have to ascend past your humanness to get yeah. to God. Um, you, are, you are never meant to be human, like that sort of sense. Um, I think that's where I'm finding such yeah. life from thinking mm -hmm. and then embodying um, this faith in this way. Uh, so I, when you were just saying that, like, it made me think of that. And to go with your um, Hopkins and Chardin quote, you're, I was just reading in Wendell, one of Wendell Berry's essays, like there's no place that's, there's no places that are sacred and unsacred. There's only sacred and desecrated. Mm -hmm. Like everything mm -hmm. is, and so it's kind of depends on how you then make that those things holy or call yeah. those things holy. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think one of his lines is God has given us the gift of good land. Right? Mm. So it's it's it's, it's yeah. all good. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. Um your 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 idea that we need to somehow transcend our humanness. Right. I would like to nuance that a little yeah. bit and yeah. say that I think one of the confusions yeah. that we can trace back to a uh getting disconnected from the idea of incarnation, right. the doctrine of incarnation, is that somehow along the way we became, there's a, there's a latent Gnosticism in mm -hmm. some versions of modern Christianity. Right. I mean, in my evangelical tradition, I think right. this is very true, and I've seen it manifest itself in many different kinds of right. ways. But this idea that, uh, and it's not a new idea, Right. That the, the, the body, the flesh is the body, and the body is somehow closely linked to our sinfulness, our brokenness, right. yeah. and uh, it, it, it is to be, you know, so we don't, we don't have the kind of uh, appreciation for our humanness as embodied. Right. We think spirituality is going to be something more than embodied. Right. Yeah. Or it, our, to be spiritual is to transcend our connection to our bodies or something like right. that. Right, yes. We, I think yeah. there's many... We get into some really interesting modern phenomena here in terms of the way people think or interpret right. Christianity. Here's a <clears throat> really simple idea. Well, I'd, I'd actually like to go back to this idea that in frailty... Yeah. Uh, so, so in all these manifestations of humanness, mm -hmm. um, you know, th there's this redemptive possibility. Yeah. There's an innate goodness, if you will, uh, in all created things, and so there's possibility for right. holiness. Right. In all manner of uh, the created order. And uh, you, you see this in some really good writing. I just uh, reread uh, Graham Greene's, written about 80 plus years ago, The Power and the oh, Glory. I haven't 
because of the fallen yeah. priest, the, the character of the whiskey priest. Right. And, and uh, he's in this miserable Mexican prison in the 1930s. They're trying to track down and kill all the priests. It was mm -hmm. a communist revolution, yeah. as Green depicts it. And he's he is in a put in a jail room all night long in mm -hmm. the, the darkness. And he meets a, a woman in there who's a very pious Christian woman, but pious in all the the narrowest ways. Right. And uh, Green has this priest saying that uh, all of these the, the woman finds out this priest is a fallen priest. And she says, I, I think the sooner you die, the better. And he, this priest has all the reason in the world to you know, despise this, this woman. Right. But uh, the way uh, Green puts it is, he says, the priest says, when it, he uses the light as a metaphor mm -hmm. for um, being able to see people, all things with compassion, even the despised. Mm -hmm. Even right. the haters, yeah. even yeah. the worst depictions of yeah. our human condition, mm -hmm. and this priest is able to see that even this woman, mm -hmm. and even the miserable people in the darkness of this room that they have to listen to all night long are redeemable. There's something holy even in them, um, you know. And and Green is this beautiful metaphor of. He says, if we could see these people in the light, right. if we could see the uh, the lines at the corner of their eyes, mm. the, the shape of their mouths, the, the way their hair sits on their head, it would be impossible to hate them. Mm. Right. Beautiful yeah. image of, uh, you know, mm. to not see the whole world as an epiphany of God. Right. is a failure of imagination. Right. And that's why I go back to this idea of, of cultivating a way of seeing as, a, I think, a really beautiful image of what it means to become a, a holy and spiritual person. Right. Just to see the world for its potentiality, its intrinsic goodness, its, its potential to be what it was made to be. Right, right. Holy. I can, I'm going to jump. We in. have so many questions. No. <laughs> no, I, we, I think it's important to state it explicitly. We are meant to be saved, and frailty is good. Um, what is salvation then? What are we being saved from? Because I think a lot of people think, well, we're going to be saved from our, our flesh. Are we going to be saved from you know the world? The you know, but we're saying all these things are good. So then what are we being saved from? Again, you know, these are not new. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. it's a really good well, question. I think it needs to be clarified yeah. because yeah. there, and, and I think we need to call out some of the bad teaching that actually helped define, helped, you know, the early church define yeah. incarnation a little bit or mm -hmm. at least Absolutely. embrace it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so much to say about this. I mean, the, the, the first thing I want to say is that um, one of the let me start in the current context, mm -hmm. and then but also go back to a, a similar kind of questioning, re, really in the first few hundred years of the Christian faith. One of the things I've noticed among young 
adult Christians uh, these days is that many of them seem to be very ambivalent about the body and the role of the body mm -hmm. in the Christian life. And mostly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to generalize here, mm -hmm. But and I have some you know anecdotal data to back this up as well. Right. You know, ask certain questions. For example, if you uh, talk about what is an orthodox doctrine of bodily resurrection, many young Christians have never heard of that before. Right. They think, no, that's wrong. Um, you know, bodies don't go to heaven, or you know, bodies aren't right. part of the new creation. Right. Um, the body is associated with sin and what pulls us down and uh, right. and carnality yeah. and uh, a fleshly life um, and so this idea that you know, they many young Christians are more drawn to like a stoic idea hmm. of the afterlife in which the, the body is transcended and left behind right. which actually fits with some versions of you know the the, uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God the end of time that the the, the rapture will mean a, a moving away from all things material, right. including this earth. Yeah. But that is not a biblical view. Right. And uh, it's certainly not a, uh, a historic Christian view. And um, now if you go, so let's go back to the, 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 the first time this comes right. up, mm -hmm. which is really when you have Gnosticism is this, I'm not going to go into what it is, but say 300 AD, uh, BC to about 300 CE. Right. So about four to six hundred years is a very strong group of ideas around this idea that the physical is inferior to the uh, the non-physical. But yeah. uh, you have yeah. the complication too of uh, plate Platonism, yes. right? Which is a very very powerful. In fact, it shapes the theology of early Christianity in a very strong way. Augustine is your you know yeah. your poster person for that. Uh, though he's a what they call a late Platonist, and he nuances Plato's philosophy in, a, I think, a more faithful Christian way. However, Platonism also shares this idea that um, the physical is an inferior part of reality. Uh, ontologically, as the philosophers would say, uh, the apparent, the world of appearance, the physical, is not the realm of the real. Right. What is right. real is invisible. Right and uh, non-physical. Yeah. So, so you have these ideas rolling around in the early Christian church, and so the creeds sort of address this. So, historic credo Christianity says, and I, I quote the the Nicene Creed mm -hmm. says, "God becomes flesh." Um, yeah. Jesus is word from word, light from light, uh, begotten, not made. Right. Um, and all this happens for us and for our salvation. Right. Why does God become flesh? Right. It's for us and for us. So, so there's got to be something really important about salvation. Mm -hmm. But how could God become flesh if salvation meant somehow dismissing or denying or refuting right. or you, yeah. know, you know eradicating right. the flesh right the material so what i want to say is that for early christian writers and i think this is really at the core of christianity's view of salvation mm -hmm. it's not so much getting your sins taken care of i mean I, and i know a lot right. of modern 
right. uh, modern evangelical theology really focuses a lot on on that right but really this more historic idea of salvation rooted in the creeds and the early church fathers and mothers is this idea that our our biggest problem isn't getting acquittal for the things mm. we've done wrong I mean that that's important but rather it's to become uh, is to enter into intimate fellowship right. with God uh, and neighbor <laughs> and, and, yeah. and neighbor yeah, yeah. Mm. to uh, relationally to become all that we were created to be um, you know our being made holy our the potential to participate in God's right. very self and God's very nature and uh, but so so the early church fathers, you know, um, this is the debate about Athanasius and a guy called Cyril yeah. of Alexandria. They want to hang on to this idea that Jesus is fully divine, even as he's fully human. Right. Because that happened so that we could come closer to God. Right. We could experience fellowship in this intimate way with God. And so salvation is really this idea that um, humans might come to share in the divine life of the Trinity, to enter into the uh, you know the divine movement, the the mm -hmm. dance, yeah. the the joy, the mutuality, the uh, of uh, the love, right. the mutual love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, I mean. Uh, there's this famous phrase, Athanasius, Irenaeus, second century. Yeah. Many of the early Christian writers say this very explicitly, um, that unless God becomes what we are, while remaining truly God, we can't become what God is, right. while we ourselves remain fully and truly human. So, you know, here we're getting into some mystery. Yeah. And here we're yeah. getting oh, into that something that. That, yeah. that that really, um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to call it paradox. I want to call it mystery. Um, something right. something that uh, is to be experienced. Something mystical. Uh, Richard Rohr says yeah. that the mystical is a way of knowing. Yeah, right. Yeah. It is another way of knowing. Yeah. Mysticism. The word becomes flesh so that we might be saved. Right. Which, yes, um, we are fallen. We uh, are broken. Uh, we, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, something to sort out about sin. Yeah. But yeah. I think the essence of salvation in the classic, creedal, historic Christian view is that we need help to... Right you know God descends to us we can't ascend to God right we can't do that right that's a fundamental Christian commitment yeah. and affirmation that we can't save ourselves yeah. so God in his love mm. and providence descends to us in Christ salvation I want to you said something earlier about how seeing is kind of key and then we were talking um, before we started recording about how you were a pastor for 16 years. And there were, um, so there's something about, so I want to ask, if is there um, something from your pastoring, pastoral times, mm -hmm. about how people are 
shaped, how their seeing is trained, what worship has to do with that, uh, what practices have to do with helping us to see this truth and not just relying on the, our ability to kind of carve out certainty by saying, well, I've checked off this box and now I'm here and, and everything's good. But this kind of training ground of, of, yeah, training our eyes, training our ears to enter this um, mystery. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you have stories from your pastoral time or questions or from that time? <laughs> regrets, too. No. <laughs> Any regrets? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I do have some, like, in a very broad sort of right. pastiche, if you will, of yeah. some, some impressions some insights, I guess, some things observed over right. time. Mm-hmm. Um, even as I entered into uh, leading the church, and, and one of the things I really believe in is this, that the practice of worship, mm-hmm. worship as an embodied, I mean, it's, right. I mean, all of our lives are embodied. I mean, we, you know, incarnation is at the very definition of personhood. Right. Uh, but but then, you know, we are called out uh, as Christians. That's what the, the New Testament says. Uh, we are a, a, a priesthood. We are mm. we are formed as a as a people, and that's an embodiment right. where we when we gather, and we're called to worship. Right. We're actually called to worship. That's not our idea. That way. You know, it's, it's something that we respond to out of obedience and gather. So there's embodiment there, and mm-hmm. we physically come together. To form um, a new body. To well. form a new body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, I, I think many of us get the idea that Jesus was a human. I mean, to some degree. I mean, we get squeamish, perhaps, if, you know, we right. extend it to think about Jesus as a sexual being. Right, yeah. You know, somebody who got yeah. sick. Um, yeah had a bad day, good right. day, maybe physically. <laughs> uh, but where I think we really have struggled with this is, you know, things like the practices of worship, like the Eucharist. Right. Where we have, you know, our imaginations then fall short. So this idea of seeing, seeing is really a way of talking about our liturgical imagination, our imagination for how we worship and what's possible in our practice and just in our all the forms of embodiment that our worship takes right. even gathering to call ourselves you know Paul's metaphor you are the body of Christ right. we the church is the body of Christ I mean oh that's a nice metaphor Maybe <laughs> he didn't mean that literally um, Teresa of Avila Christ has no body now but yours right no hands but yours no feet but yours right no eyes to look on the world with compassion but yours so, I mean, I think that there's a lot of the Christian way of tradition, uh, the, the Orthodox tradition that says, um, you know, some of this isn't metaphor. Um, we really are right. uh, when we gather, so, so to, to worship. So, you know, I, hmm. I have to say that I had some pretty high and lofty theological ideas uh, about starting the church and the way we would worship. Right. And, and I think I, I, you know, I think we got this right, that we actually didn't have many other programs. None right. of us took courses in church starting. Um, we were real novices. Yeah. 
But we had this idea that worship could become, you know, our our central reason for being. Yeah. Uh, and initially, in a formal sort of gathered way on on Sundays. But then we began to see that really it was all about worship all the time. <laughs> right. But but going to practice, um, you know, we uh, were a, an evangelical church that began to explore the practice of Eucharist. Right. Um, and, um, you know, as you think about incarnation and the principle behind the implications that... Um, you know, the Chardin quote about, you know, with incarnation, nothing in the world is profane. Right. There's this possibility for all things to become holy. Yeah. And and there's there's this idea that Jesus holds up the bread and says, this bread is my body, and it'll be broken for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of remembrance, of uh, not just remembering a past event, but reenacting something that makes its mm. its effects real now. But even remembering is a physical, like now with brain science and all, we're starting to understand how memory works a little bit. Like we're just getting, again, still oh, a lot of room for mystery there. there. But yeah, remembrance and all this is like we are actually reinforcing and, and revisiting these huh. experiences yeah. all the time when we partake in the Eucharist. Yeah. I have to jump in. Uh, you're you're making me oh, for the last I don't know twenty minutes. I've just been thinking about N.T. Wright's uh, book, The Case for the Psalms, where he's like, "Hey, we've missed the boat if we aren't practicing the Psalms, um, because the Psalms are all about time, space, and matter." Mm-hmm. And you mentioned time and space, and hopefully people have Ooh. understood that we are actually talking about matter in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'm a physics teacher as well, so I. You know, I really resonate with this idea of time, space, and matter. Um, God's holy mountain, Zion, Jerusalem, the temple is where God lives in the Psalms. And if we just interpose ourselves or our communities into the Psalms in that meaning, and you recognize that God actually lives in us, in us collectively, um, and the time being, you know, back then, now, in the future, and like all of this <laughs> at the same time, and in the space, you know, so we have, yeah, the incarnation, we have Mary, we have, you know, the birth of Christ, but we also have Christ living in this space, like across the planet, but also if we think into the cosmos, and, mm-hmm. and then down into each atom, and, you know, the quarks that make up, oh, I love it. <laughs> like, like there's so much just in the Psalms, and if we don't explore that, we miss the the scope of what the incarnation is. So something about like using Psalms in worship is that kind yeah. of what NT writes things. So, so like that helps to reshape even how we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this sense of worship. Okay. So yeah, I think I we need to talk to, more about yeah. worship. Yeah. The earth yeah. is the Lord. I think this is Psalm eighty-four. I forgot yeah. to bring my Bible. Oh, I know. The, you know, it, it really what we're talking about is a. Well, again, I apologize for using a yeah. kind of a theological sounding word, but I think it's one we ought to not apologize for and right. embrace in the church, that we are called to have a sacramental imagination. Right. 
and this is about seeing mm-hmm. the whole universe as uh, infused with the presence of God. Uh, you've yeah. mentioned that several times. Um, there's this divine imprint. There's this DNA yeah. in all matter and all things. God takes on flesh, and now every home becomes a, a holy place. Mm-hmm. Every child mm-hmm. becomes the Christ child. Mm-hmm. Um, every time we sit down for food and drink, right. this is a moment for sacramental awareness and seeing and possibility. And our goal becomes to home the eye. Now, I can't remember Blake well, but William Blake's lovely lines about to see the world, the eternity in a grain of sand. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, to see with that eye. Mm. Um, that's really, I think, capturing the the spiritual journey, really. Right. So I want to go back to your, Jack, your question about worship and embodiment. I think that if all these things were saying about the dignifying, the ennobling right. of of the embodied, yeah. Um, then, you know, worship itself. We, we shouldn't be surprised to that God wants to get into us hmm. through our bodies. Right. Um, this idea that you know, be, being Christian is really about what you understand and can confess and articulate. It's a very modern idea. It's a very recent idea right. in the grand scheme of things. Um, and in fact, if you delimit what it means to be a Christian by answering, you know, by, say, creating some litmus tests for, do you believe this, do you believe that? Right. And I'm not even sure that's what the creeds were initially meant to do. Right. Uh, in some sense, they were, but they also uh, were able to shape and, and direct mm. uh, one's imagination. Right. If you said, this is, here's the picture what God has done in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, so so we shouldn't be surprised that, that God can get into us through our bodies. Right. And that there are means, now to use some historic Christian language, that God uses bodily things. Right. Water. Yeah. Wine. Bread. Conversation. Fellowship. Uh, to communicate grace, to be a means of grace in our lives. I mean, that's sort of not like an Mm add-on. Right. Oh, by the way, you get this in your head, you're a Christian, but also there's this. Yeah. I I would say that for many people, even some of the brainiac, nerdy theology types, and I would include myself in that, (laughs) I love the ideas. But right. I have to say, yeah. that by far, the most, <laughs> the most profound um, experience of the reality of God for me have been deeply embodied ones. Yeah. Uh, that transcend any sort of reduction to a formula right. or a statement or a, even a doctrine. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see how the doctrine could be formed out of that kind of right. awareness, yeah. brute, sort of irreducible yeah. experience of the presence yeah. of God or 
the joy, you know, not not just in in the, in the beauty, but also in the, you know, it's it's odd to speak about this, but also in the ugliness. I mean, I mean, th- right. th- there's also this encounter with right. um, the sacred in just all these dimensions of human phenomena, the miserable and the despicable, but also the the glorious right. and the uh, the elevated. So. Yeah, to, to, so, so I think that in my experience, so here's what happened. I had many people come to me and thank me after my tenure of 16 years as their right. pastor. <laughs> and I was, I was really, and I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been surprised by this. I'm embarrassed to say I was. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I knew this. This was, you know, what I knew to be true. But I don't think I believed it. People said to me, they thanked me for the weekly opportunity to receive the presence of Christ mm. in the Eucharist. Mm. I mean, right. I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, boy, I, I sure hope this means something to somebody. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's not me talking. We're doing the same thing that yeah. we did last yeah. week. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, nothing has changed here. But we're forgetful creatures. There's not a new idea. There's nothing new right. here. Yeah. Uh, there's not a creative word for mm-hmm. how to get through this week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, because there might be, but did but, you? Okay, so did you shape it so like so maybe in a more orthodox way where you say the same things every week, like because I so um, we I we are a part of a church. You know, it's kind of like your. I don't want to say run-of-the-mill church, but it's, you know, your few songs, sit for a sermon, every month we'll do uh, communion. Um, But to me, it sounds like you are doing something more, um, like, solid. Like, this is what we come and do every week. I'm not going to tell you some new idea. Well, I'm not going to say we are doing anything special. Right. And I I really wonder what we think we're doing in worship. Yeah. Um, And I... Well, I, I do know, I think I do think I know. Yeah. <laughs> and I think many of us yeah. believe that what we're doing when we worship is expressing right. uh, something to God. Mm-hmm. And that's a noble motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's important. We do come to express our love for God, our thanksgiving, our adoration. We lift up praise. Um in our worship, but um, but this idea that worship is mainly mainly expressing right. that really makes worship about us. Right, it's something we are, have come to do to God. Right, and I think even though there's a part of that that's true, we miss something profoundly important if we think that's all that's happening. Right. Because then the action of worship becomes mainly about us. Right. And we lose sight of the fact that in worship, God is acting as well. Right. What about that? And it's through things like, I think, repeated. Now, the, the thing about repetition in worship, and, and this is the thing. If worship is all, and Jamie Smith, mm-hmm. James K.A. Smith, does a wonderful job of unpacking this, right. uh, these subtleties in some of his books. But he says that, you know, if we think that worship is mainly about expression, then 
we feel this pressure to do something new and different right. and right. better next week than totally. we did last week. To create the feeling That's of right. yeah. expression. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so um, the, the genuineness right. and the integrity of our worship becomes how much heart, our heart, our oh, enthusiasm, our yeah. sincerity... Yeah, but but if it's the same old thing, I mean that you know how's that going to be sincere? I mean it's going to become rote right. and mundane. Mm. But but that is to to delimit what's happening in worship to what mainly we're doing, right. and you completely miss this idea that it is through these practices. And and the important thing about the practices is that they're all embodied. Right. Yeah. Even yeah. Even if it's just talking heads. It's still we're hearing the same, but it would be hearing the same words. So if you have this, this repetition, right, this same prayer, the, this same action, mm-hmm. we, we hear it. We speak the same words. We we move in the same way. We receive right. the bread and the cup. Mm-hmm. We greet people with the the peace of Christ. Yeah. And, um, we hear the testimony. We, you know, we read the word. We, we say the same responses, that that repetition can also be a kind of practice that helps link these means of grace through our body. So right. we, we, we receive grace through embodiment, through our bodies. And you may not get that unless you do repeat some things. Right. Yeah. And, and here's one more thing while I'm thinking about it, I would add is how, you know, if we make, if we make, worship really a thing about the head yeah um you know it, it also limits who can worship right uh, who yeah. can and, and i mean if 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 the integrity of our worship is about you know maybe how much you understand about what you're doing um and the words you're using yeah. and the songs yeah. you're singing yeah. um what about those who you know the infirm the disabled right children i mean are children then Delimited in the integrity of their worship right. by how cognitively, uh, you know, Developed. how much they how understand. Much they get yeah. it, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I think mm. I think we're really missing something if we think worship is somehow not uh, uh, valuable or right. uh, important if we don't see it as something that's. Uh, em- about our embodied practices right. when we gather, and and that and that extends to then the things we talk about as sacraments, right. specific sacraments, uh, these things that where God's presence comes to us through bread, right. you know, simple things, the simplest things the simplest possible, things, things. Yeah. things. Mm. Um, One thing, even you know, Jesus is the teacher. In order to learn things, um, there is repetition, and there is all of these things. And in repetition, we can actually join together and do things together. Because if there's always something unique, then it's, okay, well, I guess i got to sit and watch this. And next week, it, oh, it's, it's different. So I actually can't join in oh, and participate yeah. in that yeah, either. So it's, it becomes more of a performance. And, I mean, that's a pretty crass way of, depict, of describing it. But it does. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember, you know, in my yeah. early 20s, I was like, oh, in the Psalms, it says, sing a new song to the Lord. We can do away with all these old hymns. We've got to do a new song now I'm like actually no I can't stand new songs because I can't join in and participate and I don't even know what the melody is and like it's just very difficult to participate when I when I uh for a little while I was attending an orthodox church and 
uh, the sensory experience of being there. So not only were we listening to the uh, singing of the entire liturgy, um, so we're listening, we can see images of the saints, the icons all around us, and there's actually movement happening in ceremonial movement of, you know, putting on these uh, liturgical garments and oh, yeah. moving around with these um, objects mm -hmm. of worship. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but then also we have the incense burning and we can smell these things. And then we eat the bread and drink the wine. I wasn't allowed to drink the wine, but I could eat <laughs> some of the bread of fellowship, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, all of our senses, all of the senses, like touching, we would kiss, you know, I actually I also did not participate in this because I just felt so awkward. But, um, you know, you kiss the icons and there's this physical yeah. act mm, of absolutely. touching. Yeah. And it, and it was beautiful. And I remember the first time I experienced it, it was, it was a three hour liturgy. Wow. I stood yeah. the entire time. I couldn't participate because I didn't know the melody and I, you know they skip like uh, like three pages and uh, so I get <laughs> lost to trying yeah. to follow the liturgy but after three hours of just gazing on Christ gazing on you know just mm -hmm. fixing my eyes and all of my senses on Christ I've never been more refreshed huh. and and I and that act of worship was not something that I've been able to replicate, <laughs> that, you know, that I've been able to experience anywhere yeah. else. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, as you say that, I'm reminded that, I mean, if you, they're actually signs. I, I think that we were created as, you know, we talk about this idea, of, a Christian idea of personhood, right. but really it's, a, it's really a common sense idea that persons are, fully persons as they embrace their embodiment right and yeah. and it's interesting yeah. I, I don't know how much this relates but i think there's a hint of this for example in the common grace experience mm -hmm. right. of of this movement back to uh, you might think this is off in the wrong direction here but i love those ones. we like that but, but, yeah. <laughs> but think about the way our world say in the last 30 years has moved so rapidly towards a digitized technological mm -hmm. sort of way of living yeah. especially in our developed world context so that um, we have so much information and it's become very personalized and private and it's it's all digital right but there's been this reaction to that yes. and think they sort of I mean think of some of these things like the desire for vinyl records mm -hmm. absolutely right. um, yeah uh, many instances sort of the revenge of the analog Right. right this desire for tangible yeah. things we can touch to go back to the warm sound of the vinyl record yeah. something we have to put on a turntable as a physical um, act yeah of participating right. with it yeah there's yeah. been this uh, return mm. to embodiment in yeah. a lot of ways um if you think of some of the research about how um say personal smartphones have changed the way we interact in, right. in embodied relationships. Yeah. Um, uh, Sherry Turkle at MIT in her series of books, um, the research on the difference in the kind of interaction you have with another hu in, in, human being mm -hmm. if your smartphone is sitting on the 
the table. Right? right. Even if it's turned off and turned upside down, it still affects the quality of right. the interaction. Yeah. So I'm just saying that um, what you said about the experience of worship as a completely multi-sensory and embodied experience, yeah. not just a head experience. And I, again, I think some of this is related, can be related to our our, our modernity mm. in, in, in Christianity where we've cleaved to the cognitive and to the what we profess right. we believe. Right. Um, and so even to the extent that I think in some some a lot of Christian evangelical circles there's a discomfort with embodiment. We're not right. quite sure what to do with it. And you see this I mean, that's another opening up another can of worms. But it's another implication yeah. that if we don't get incarnation right, that right. the doctrine of incarnation shapes so much of not just our faith, but the way we live, right. the way we yes. are. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm thinking here of things like, uh, and again, here's a manifestation in the world of, say, Christian evangelical millennials, right. where there's this strange Gnosticism at work, where uh, maybe they don't believe in a bodily resurrection, but at the same time, they think of purity Right. as mainly uh, something highly sexualized right. and only about the body. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to the to the point that um, <laughs> you know purity is about sex, right. but it's not connected to greed or the way we right. uh, view and steward the planet, the creation. Right. Um, so there's this bifurcation that's Gnostic, really. Right. It's not Christian. Yeah. Dualistic view yeah. of everything, right? Or, yeah. or or purity becomes you know think of the the purity movement, yeah. right? Uh, right. Amongst uh, which was popular, maybe it still is. 90s. Yeah. 80s, 90s. Um, which I think was just a, a really sad episode. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, um, and, and again, these things aren't new. Um, you know, uh, Augustine right. uh, was confronted with a kind of distorted view of uh, Paul's teaching that about the flesh, the things of the flesh versus the things of the spirit. Right. And it would have been very easy through a Gnostic kind of lens to say, ah, the things of the flesh are the things of the body. Right. But that's really not, an, and Augustine is very good at pointing this out. He says, when Paul talks about the, the works of the flesh, he's really talking about things, not just uh, physical temptation, he's talking about greed and avarice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other kinds of sin or struggle um, so that really what he meant by the, the, the sin of the flesh is anything any way of living contrary to God's way right that would include both body and mind right yeah. yeah and so yeah. too that the way of the spirit life in the spirit yeah. versus exactly. the flesh would be a life lived according to the ways of God the ways of the spirit which would include both the way we think Right. And believe and the way we embody right. our lives. So that's a confusion. And I yeah. still think we're struggling with yeah. that in some yeah. way. Or, or, and again, another bizarre twist. Um, I have come across this phenomenon where some Christian young adults, um, you know, think, live with so much shame. Right. Because purity as a highly sexualized idea right. is linked to the body. Yeah. And it's a one and done deal. I mean, if you are right. not pure, you yeah. that's, that's done. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. no going back. You can't get that back. No, you can't right. get that back. 
And uh, that's just not the way the gospel yeah. says it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you narrow it down to something so um, right, you know, so narrow, yeah, uh, that's a misunderstanding, I think, of what Christians believe and teach. Um, well, let's just end with this question. First, thank you so much, Terry, for coming downtown to the My library pleasure. to talk with us about embodiment and incarnation and big theological words that might shape everything. <laughs> um, last question um, maybe would be this. What is one embodied thing you are doing or you're living with right now that is giving you life, that's giving you hope? <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy being active yeah and I always have yeah and uh, I believe it or not I still play hockey yeah and uh, I do and, and also I've been married I, I, there those are two big embodied parts of huh. my lives yeah and I have two children and uh, you know they're both there's both light and darkness hmm. in those call them realms of embodied living yes. yeah um, one is that um, let's say diminished skill oh, and yeah. capacity yeah. to to perform well say in something like cycling which I do a right. lot of um, or as I was explaining to my daughters the other day I can no longer shoot the puck very well right. and I'm not very strong <laughs> I can still skate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but there's something in 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 sports, if you will, or play. Yeah. Which um, really brings you to a place mm. of delight. Yeah. I mean, I think there's physiological evidence that it does release certain. You know. Yeah. I forget yeah. the name of them. Oh, endorphins. Endorphins. Yeah. yeah. Um, that that really bring you pleasure. I mean, one of the yeah. most. Uh, hackneyed cliches or illustrations in the the sermon book is uh, you know Eric Little, the Scottish sprinter, chariots of fire, the films, oh, won the Academy yeah. Award, I think in yes, the yes. early '80s, and he's a sprinter and he's a Christian, and he says, "When I run, I feel the pleasure of God in me." Hmm. But I really yeah. do think that in even our diminished yeah. movements, yeah, um, there's this pleasure, and I I I receive pleasure. And, yeah. Um, when I cycle, um, when I play hockey, yeah. When I feel tired, um, mm -hmm. so there's joy in that. And I was I mentioned marriage and family. I mean, I mean, in all these things, you're you're there's light and dark. There's shadow and, mm -hmm. and brightness. Um, you know, you have this sense of diminishing skill and capacity physically. But in in my marriage, um, I've been married 36 years. Or so, and uh, there's a richness. I mean, there, there's, you know, you know a person for thirty six yeah. years, let's say, but then you realize you actually still there's things you still learn. Right. Uh, there's more to learn. There's mystery. Yeah. There. There's yeah. there's also joy. Yeah. Um, there's new struggle. Yeah. There's new challenge, <laughs> and oh, <great>. uh, <laughs> and it, once you're a parent, you know, that, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. nothing gets as earthy. Yeah, as yeah. nitty gritty totally. as you know, bearing children, yeah, raising children, yeah, feeding children, 
walking with them through these mm. early developmental years right. through high you know, I have two daughters yeah you know I'm thinking of going I was just thinking of the last decade you know it's right. uh, 2020 yeah. it wasn't just happy new year's happy new decade but I was driving my daughter to the airport uh, a couple of days ago and yeah. I said boy think of all the things that have happened in the last 10 years right two graduations for, for her yeah uh, leaving the nest yeah, yeah. um and to realize that these things are happening in time and space. Yeah. Uh, it, it fills you with wonder and awe. Right. It also fills you with anticipation and not a little bit of fear. Right, yes. About what's coming next. Mm. It wasn't all sweetness and light. There were yeah. some struggles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, anyone out there raising teenage daughters? Yeah. Uh, these are challenging times. Yeah. We, we both have <laughs> tweens, yes. tween girls. And... Uh, <laughs> And yet, um, yeah, there's something in the shadow too that mm. has the promise of uh, yeah. you know, the hope of Christ. That allows and, us to surrender and brings us <laughs> brings us to that altar yeah. of oh. and gives us an opportunity to practice seeing and, 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 and like, absolutely. I, I, yeah, I really I really like this. Yeah. So yeah. there's my there's my oh, what's giving that. me That's embodied so hope yeah. and joy. Thank you. is done at the Central Public Library here in downtown Calgary, uh, where the Luke's Coffee Shop graciously gives us coffee We for pay for it. We money. pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> and music provided by Jennifer Oikawa. You can find her album Escape Plan to Canada uh, by the Jen Oikawa Trio on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your music. Music